Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. I want to talk more concretely. The people who are listening, they don't understand relapse and they don't understand slips, especially in the arena where I work. Because you can imagine that a spouse will say, you're drinking too much and it's ruining the family, really angry, maybe you don't care about me. But in the understanding of alcohol, alcoholism and drug addiction, they kind of understand that it isn't about them, that the person is just a mess and they might get cleaned up and be better. But when spouses see someone acting out in this way, it's so personal for them. You know, it's you're cheating on me. And so one of the hardest things for me to get across to a spouse is they will say to me, how can he love me or how can she love me and do this at the same time? And I think that's clear in drugs and alcohol to some degree, but it seems very, you know, why do they gamble when we know they, we need the money? You know, how can they do video games when they know they need to study? It seems harder than saying, oh, they have a drinking problem. How do I help my spouses understand that this really isn't about them, that this person had the problem before they met, and they would probably have the problem after they break up if they did, because it's so personal. You know, how could you do this to me? Um, And then there's the issue of, I promise I'll never do it again. And that's what every spouse wants to hear. And I have to tell them, maybe not. You know, maybe they'll struggle with this for a long time. There are all these kind of family issues and dynamics around understanding it, not taking it personally. Why can't they stop if they love me? And I know I'm throwing a lot of stuff out there, but is there some way mm-hmm. to help the people I work with, the spouses who are so wounded, so hurt, so destroyed? How mm. can I come help them come on even a little bit of more peace to this is really biological, trauma-based. They have this problem. It really isn't about you, even though they're cheating and hurting you. Yeah, I got all yeah. that out. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's such a tricky question, and I don't think there's a one size fits all. That that said, so so first, I'd want to honor their their reaction, which is that you know, like th- th- they're hurt, and it's okay to feel hurt. You know, I, I just want to put that out there to start. It's not like you know you're feeling hurt by the behavior, and we have to find a way to like just like move past it immediately and be compassionate or help somebody heal. But I think when you say that it's not about them, that that really is the central 
element I think that's very hard to grasp, particularly when you've got someone acting out, say, sexually, when maybe you had this assumption in the relationship that these were certain behaviors that you were only doing with me. Or you would tell me, you know, you would tell me if you're looking at a lot of porn. And we, I've heard a lot of spouses say, if you had told me at the beginning, I would have helped you. We could have talked about it. We could have, you know, but right. it's a secret and I'm ashamed of it. And then you all of a sudden find out and then they come running to seeking therapy for treatment. Yeah. Well, and interestingly enough about that, quick, quick tangent, but relevant, I think. There was uh, an individual who I was working with recently who went through the exact situation you were talking about. He had gone, I think at that point, like two months without acting out uh, with with any sex workers. I think there was like one slip with pornography. He was trying to do none of it. And then he had like a week essentially where he made one mistake. I'm going to use his terminology. I don't like to use judgment, judgment words, slip. but you know, he, he had a slip and then another. And so it started to snowball. And what eventually we discussed was that ultimately what, what sustained this behavior was the isolation and the disconnection was what you're talking about there, the, the, the shame that he feels snowballing into more avoidance of the shame for the same behavior. And because his wife had already stuck with him and she found out so much of what he'd done with the past, why don't you try reaching out to her instead? And he actually found that it that she responded a lot better than he thought that she would and that she wanted to try to help him get through this because he'd been making such an effort to try to change. And so it's it's one of those things where, back to your original question of how can you not personalize it, it can be really tough. I think societally we're, to- we're told a lot of stories about monogamy and fidelity and you know, there's a lot of that baked into the way that we think about it, so that this type of addiction feels even more personal than the other ones. But at its core, it's exactly like you said. This is this is something where if they had, if someone has their values in mind, or if they're sitting in the same room as their spouse, and it was like, you know what, I'm still going to hurt you right now. There's a mental process that happens where that's not how they look at it. They shut all of that out. It's all compartmentalized, and then they go do that, you know, whatever the thing is, and then find a way to rationalize it. And that's just that's part of the syndrome that you've got to break through in treatment. And it's, it's really tough. You know, it's interesting you're talking about this because, and I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but one of the things we do in treatment is we ask the spouses to write a letter about what their experience was with the person they loved and what they're troubled about and how the relationship has been a problem. And then we read them in treatment. And what's fascinating to me is that, and I've read hundreds of these letters, is that 20% of them about you're cheating, you're being sexual, you hurt me, you're with this other man or woman. 80% of them is about, I feel disconnected, you don't communicate with me. You're really shut down. I feel like you're in a different room. When I ask you to connect with a family, you're like, I'm on the computer and I'm busy. So there's this whole sense, or you're not attending the family. You're showing up like to do things, but you're not really engaged. You know, this kind of, you're, you're walking through the job, but you're not really present. So I hear all this stuff that precedes the awareness or goes along with the awareness of the addiction. And so spouses and partners will say, I knew I just accepted that this is how I married, that they're just distant and unavailable, and maybe that's the way it is. But you and I would say that's part of it, is this disconnect from even the people that they love and care about. But Mm -hmm. it's just fascinating to me that the thing that's most absent and hurting the relationship is the relationship, and not necessarily the drinking, the using, and all of that. It feels like that's some of what you're building on, which is all these things that you see and experience. The addiction is sort of the end point. Oh yeah. Yeah. Or, or there's so many dynamics that are part of the addiction and that's just one of, one of the symptoms of it. But 
that, that, that sense of disconnection and compartmentalization, a really easy strategy that I use with a lot of folks uh, dealing with all sorts of addictions when they've made a decision that they want to change and they, they, they don't want to, to use or behave in the way that they were before is we'll actually take a picture of their family or some other goal or value and we'll put it on their steering wheel. Because a lot of times, because again, I, I deal mostly with chemical addictions, they're going somewhere to buy it and they have to then look at something that they care about. And they have to make the active decision, I am not, I'm going to hurt you actively with this behavior. I'm going to keep a secret. I'm going to be a person I don't actually want to be in this moment, but I'm going to look right at it and make that decision. And most of the time, that is enough of a nudge to change because there's this sequence, almost like blinders on a horse, right? Where you like get into this place. That's biological. Yeah. And that that sequence is biological. Yeah. And you've got to break through. It's interesting because if you asked me to do that as an addict and put a picture of your family and kids on the you know speedometer or whatever in my car so I can remind it when I'm going out that I would just turn the picture around because I'm an addict and I don't want to see it and I don't want to be reminded of it so I can stay in it. In other words, addicts will, despite all the many things we might throw in front of them, just jump over them. And that's, you know, if they cared about their family and loved ones, they wouldn't be doing what they're doing. And I'm not trying to devalue, it's just like, out of sight, out of mind. And I will say something to what you said, which is one of the things I say to the people I work with is you may continue, but it'll never be the same. You will always know that you're hurting your family. We've spent too much work. You will always know that you're abandoning. You will always know that sex with a coworker means this. So yeah, I think there is a lot of work about what you're talking about, having it in mind and not being Mm -hmm. able to just throw it out and say that doesn't matter. Oh, absolutely. Well, and I think it also has to do with the level of motivation because 100%, I mean, there's plenty of people who uh, are not ready for change and they get on like, say a medication for opioids like Suboxone or Methadone. All you have to do is just stop taking it and you can go back out and start using again. You know, like if, if you're not really rooted in this place where you're connected to your values, you're making a change, you have a support system, a picture on your you know, on your dashboard or on your steering wheel is going to make zero difference. It's all, you know, rests on this foundation of readiness for change, awareness of the situation. And then when you're in those moments, when the biological urge comes up and it starts to take hold, then when you start to see those little intrusions of like, oh, wait, I care about my family or I care about my wife, that's when you're not just going to necessarily flip the picture over, but instead you'll think, wait a second, what am I doing? Is this really what I want to do? One of the questions that comes up a lot with the people I work with is, is the person I love a bad person in the broadest sense? You know, are they just destined to hurt people and get what they want without thinking about them? And as you know, one of the biggest issues for the people we work is a lack of empathy. In fact, it's really sad, but when I talk to the men about how they feel about what they've done. Like, I'm such a horrible person and I'm awful and I've ruined my family. I don't want people to look at this. I can't believe I'm this kind of person. But what they don't say is anything empathic. Like, I can't believe what my spouse must be going through. I can't believe what my what I've done to my family and how my kids are experiencing my absence. So I guess that's kind of one of my questions is how does that thinking work? Well, I think addiction, and to be honest, a lot of when mental health problems grow out of like the normal range, like because everyone gets depressed or anxious, sometimes it becomes very self-referential and disconnected. We're worrying about 
like our feelings of depression, how we're coming across in a meeting and that we're anxious about it, um, how bad of a person we are. You know, it's, it's always in, 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 instead of out, out or, or give, give. Around. Right, right. Yeah. And, and so we, we can start to, and that ultimately, we talk a lot about the necessity of connection and addiction recovery, no matter whether or not it's chemical or process, because so much of this exists and persists only because of the isolation. And that by having a community of loving, healthy, supportive people around you, that can make such a world of difference. Like a 12-step program. Like a 12-step program, absolutely. Which is why I lead people there as much for the process as the social support. Oh, yeah. I mean, growing up in the families many addicts grew up in, they asked for attention and it they didn't get it or it went somewhere else or they got punished for it. They go to a meeting, they raise their hand and people they talk about awful things and people are concerned. People give them a hug. People ask them for coffee. It's almost like a corrective emotional experience where they have now it's not gonna be in their brain naturally because they didn't grow up with that in their development. By the way, that is yeah. another question for you, because you're a smart guy about all this, is that one of the things that I see partners looking for is empathy. Why don't you understand what I'm going through? How could you love me and yet not understand how this was going to make me feel? How could you not know that I always felt like when you went out the door that you had my back, but now I realize when you go out the door, you can deliberately do things that will hurt me and you don't think twice about it. So one of the spouses, one of the things overall, and then by the way, they get in recovery, they're working really hard, but they're still assholes excuse my language. And so partners call me and they're like, I don't understand. You know, he, he, he or she's not doing this and they're not doing that. And they seem to be doing better and they're doing all the right things, but they still treat me like crap. And so I guess, I guess I want to understand the difference between being able to stop an addiction and find your way through that. And then kind of becoming a more compassionate, engaged, thoughtful human being. And I wonder if that's even possible on some level for an addict, because it has to be like learned. Yeah, t- tough question. So, so, so th- there's a phrase that I'm sure you and, and many of your listeners have come across over the years called you know, being being a quote unquote dry drunk, which means that you're doing all of the same behaviors that someone might do when they were drinking, except just not doing the actual drinking itself, like the lying, evasiveness, temp- you know, just like controlling, w- arrogant, difficult. Yeah, yeah, p- p- part of, part mm-hmm. of the constellation. And so, you know, when you're talking about still still being an asshole or a jerk or, you know, we could, we could believe it out, I suppose, if we need to. Unloving. Being unloving. And this is more of a, just in my opinion thing. I think a lot of times there's a dehumanization process that goes on where people give themselves permission to hurt others or to not think about it. It's kind of akin to what someone might do if they were in the military to have to kill somebody. Like you can't think about the fact that you're shooting someone who's got a mom and a dad and maybe kids at home. You you can't do that. And so I think that if someone's stuck in an addiction, you can't be thinking about everything that's happening. And it's all just part of that neurosis in a way that that persists and that maintains. And so if you've given yourself permission or you've compartmentalized in such a way for a long enough time, you do have to unlearn that and make an active effort to push the pendulum in, in the other direction. Or else you're going to be a lonely person, regardless of how sober you are. Hey, I got a great question for you. Yeah. Is there an addictive personality? I get that a lot. 
So I generally don't use the word, like I don't use the word addictive personality. I, I hear it a lot. What I look at it as, because again, I'm going to go back to this idea of addiction as coping. I think that there's some people who are blessed with really good coping mechanisms that might be taught to them by either their culture or their parents or whatever happened to deal with the stressors. Yeah, good good genes, nature, nurture, all mm. of it, where they can really cope well with what life throws at them. And it's not like they're super reactive to pleasurable stimuli or need to escape from stressors. I mean, not going through childhood trauma helps a lot with this. I mean, there's so many factors that go into it. But I think that over time, you can develop a really strong affinity to escapist pleasures or ways to escape your pain. And that, that means that when you find a new way to do that, that's very appealing because that's a new way to get what you really want, which is escape. And how does this trauma thing, you know, I'm trying to define some things in a way that you, you know, kind of being smarter than me in this way might be able to define, which is, you know, what about that? Like, how does that piece fit in? Oh, so childhood trauma disrupts your it disrupts your view of the world as it's forming your assumptions about are my caregivers trustworthy are they going to be there for me will i have food do i need to hoard resources do i need to is my home a safe place do i have a stable home i mean there's so many of these assumptions i think when people have not gone through these experiences that they take for granted that they have these really stabilizing aspects to their life that when you don't have them from an early age it makes you question so much and survival instincts essentially kick in. And that's a really tough place to be emotionally, physically. Cortisol, a stress hormone coursing through your blood all the time. I mean, there's- At six, at three. Right, at six, at three. Mm -hmm. And and it shapes so much of what what comes later. You asked a question earlier of like, is someone a, you know, can someone be a bad person? There's a phrase I'm going to borrow from another therapist that I really like that I think answers this question very well which is that when I see someone acting in ways that either hurt others or hurt themselves, the thought that goes through my mind is, where's the pain? Because that's almost always where it comes from. You mean the thing I'm trying to medicate, the thing I'm trying to push down, what is that thing? Yeah. Because the addiction is the symptom, right? And then you've got everything underneath, basically. Yes, you you were seeing pain being acted out. And that pain does have to be addressed, but in ways that are healthy and that can resolve it. And so I, I, I don't think that there are bad people. I, I, I don't there think are a few. I, there's this thing called sociopathy. We've definitely, right, but right. all addicts are not bad because they've hurt people is really the thought about he did this, he did yeah. that. You know, how could he do this in front of his kids or with his kids not, not be there for them? This is not a good person. And that's where it can land sometimes. And you, I don't right. You're saying you can teach someone how to what act better, but it will not be, as I was saying, it may never be intuitive to think, oh, you want to do this too, but I can learn because, and sorry, I'm asking lots of questions, but I want to go back to the trauma issue, which is part of what comes up in my work is, okay, so she has trauma, 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 you know, but what does it have to do with how they're treating me? Or are they saying, well, I'm really sorry, I'm struggling with this powerless addiction because, but I wouldn't be if all these things hadn't happened to me. So I guess it can become kind of an excuse or Mm -hmm. a place to put the problem. And yeah, I guess if I had a lot of trauma, which I have, and I'm kind of a mess and I have a reason why I am doing this behavior, are you saying 
that if I start working on the trauma first, that maybe the addiction will go away. I, I think we have to actually do them both at the same time, because a lot of times if you work on the trauma and the addiction isn't being treated or controlled, that's the coping mechanism, right? So someone just toggles onto that side and then vice versa, right? If you take away the substance or the behavior, but you're still met with the trauma, well, how are they going to, you know, they don't have coping mechanisms to, to deal with that yet. I, I don't think anyone's broken from trauma. I think that people can be wounded. I think people can have scars, but I don't think anyone's irredeemable that they can't change their relationship to the past, that they can't grow and develop. Again, personal opinion about this and just professional experience is that understanding why the way why we are the way we are today is very, very useful because that lets us know what we need to do to continue to grow. And that's the part that's our responsibility. We didn't get to choose necessarily if we were abused or molested or abandoned as a child or whatever whatever ended up happening. Even if it's just like, say, parents getting divorced, not anything as dramatic as, as abuse or anything like that, that alone can create such psychological damage if you feel like all of a sudden you don't have a stable, you know, secure home anymore. Which isn't to say that people should never get you know should never get divorced, but you can see why you are the way you are now. But then you can work on those assumptions because what you were using to survive when you were a child or try to protect yourself when you were a child might not be working for you now, and in many cases is not. And I think that's the goal ultimately of trauma treatment is to shine a light on the strategies and beliefs and systems that you develop to try to make it through an absolutely god-awful situation when you were young that might now still be hurting you or hurting you now. I, I want to back up what you said because almost every client that comes to Seek Integrity says, why? I want to know why. Where did this come from? How, you know, What is the pro- why? And I, like you said, I can show you why. But what you really need to learn is the how. You know, how do I stop this behavior? How do I learn more about it? How do I not do it? How do I learn to live with the feelings that are driving it? And it seems like what you're saying is it, why is not enough. You also need to know how. And how is not enough because you need to have some understanding as to why. I think right. that's kind of what you're talking about, and it, but I'm being very simplistic. Yeah. Well, so I, I guess to, to explain a little bit, so, so I, I work with a lot of folks with trauma. I would say that, that addictive cycles and behaviors and then trauma are my two you know, main areas of specialty. And I approach trauma treatment from a very cognitive lens. And you know, that's the way that I- What does that mean? I'm sorry, cognitive lens. I'm not sure everyone knows what that means. Yeah. So, so, so thought-based in that thoughts oftentimes drive feelings and behaviors. So let, let me give you an example. One of the most common traumatic reactions to people who have been through a violent trauma is they feel very uncomfortable in public spaces, particularly ones with lots of people. And part of it is what underlies that assumption is that if they, if anyone's like, oftentimes people will sit with their back to a wall. They'll never have their back to a door. Mm. They might know the exits from an environment before they go into it, or they mm. might choose to go into public spaces at lower density times because they feel like the fewer people there that are there, the safer that they're going to be. It's predicated on this idea that I am not safe when I cannot see behind me, because if someone can sneak up on me, I am unsafe because that was probably true at some point in their life or I know a lot of uh, people who were abused, sexually abused as children, are very, very, very much struggle at night in the dark because that's when a lot mm-hmm. of these things would happen. And so there's this immediate tension and fear response at night, or you know, like locking the door to the room. I know some people have barricaded themselves in because they feel like, well, if the dresser's in front of the door, then I'm safe. 
That's sad. That's very sad to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, but it's it was a survival strategy, and that's what created the sense of security. But it, it then stands in the way of learning that, like emotionally, like in your heart, that that is not the case anymore. Let me ask you, Dr. Weiner, and we're going to get to the end of this, I promise. You've been so generous with your time, and I'm looking forward to going on your podcast and showing up in your world. Um, in fact, folks, we made you some teaching together, which I'm really excited about. But why isn't there a cure? Why can't someone, why do I have to deal with a chronic issue the rest of my life? Why can't I be cured? Or why don't we have a cure? Is there a cure? You know, I hear that as opposed to a chronic issue that's in remission, but it's going to come back and, you know, you'll have to deal with under stress the rest of your life. And people say you got to go to meetings the rest of your life. You got to get some kind of support. Why aren't people cured? That's a tough one. <laughs> that's, a, that's a really tough one. I, you know, I and this is going to fall a little more on the opinion side for, for me, I guess. But I, I think that people are never fully cured because unlike, take cancer, for example, something that you can have biomarkers that at, least, at the very least you're in remission. You're, you might have no more cancerous cells in your body or they're below a detection threshold. You know, like you can you can measure it that way. You know, this has to do with cells that are not, that are dividing in inappropriate ways and, and you can really nail it down. But when it comes to addictions, it has more to do with these behavioral processes, which never can necessarily reach zero, or it has to do with our mind and our brain, where we have thoughts all the time that we don't ask for, like all, all day long, things just pop into our mind. <laughs> not telling you the things that pop into my I've learned not to say them. That's like my big life lesson, but I'm sorry, I... <laughs> I interrupts. No, no, no. Trust me, I'm 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 the same way. Um, you, you can ask my wife about that one. I, I definitely struggle with my filter, but but there's lots of things that pop into our mind that we don't ask for. And if you've struggled your way through an addiction and you're in recovery, it probably means that at some point your brain's going to throw an idea at you that's very that has more to do with an addiction. Like, hey, it's been a very long time. Why don't we do it? Or hey, you know what sounds like fun? Going back and doing the thing that I used to do that used to feel so good. I'm and, going out of town, you know, who will know and what's the big deal? Right. They go back to that kind of thinking. Why can't I stop that? Why can't someone take medication? Because I've heard a lot about meds, you know, well, it reduces desire, it reduces compulsivity, you know, but I, no one has put out any medication that says this will stop your addiction or this maybe even with alcohol, you've got medications, but if I stop taking them, I'm going to go, you know, I'm, I, the, the alcohol will have the effect it had and I'm going to end up doing what I did before. Why can't I cure this? Is there a day you think when the, we're going to zap the brain and we're going to say, okay, this is where that addiction thing is, it's gone. Um, are we going to be able oh, to man. cure addiction, do you think? <laughs> well, if you ask the people who are uh, researching psilocybin right now, they might tell you something different than I'll say right now. <laughs> You're talking about hallucinogenic chemicals. Which, of which there is quite a bit of, of clinical promise, but not necessarily right. miracle, miracle cures. As a teenager, I think I did a lot of that experimentation, and I'm not sure it really helped a lot, but you're probably talking about something else. Yeah, yeah different different application. Um, but I, I think it's because at its core, you know, if we leave all the biological aspects that we've talked about today aside for a second, we always are going to be faced with stressors in our life, and we're always going to want to feel better. And we're always going to be faced with the choice of how do we want to solve this problem? Or when we feel something good, can we look at it and say, within moderation, this is acceptable. But when it goes over the line, it's not. And be able to, to, to stop ahead proactively rather than reactively. And 
I, I just think that's the that's just part of our human condition. We can never actually get away from that entirely. And the problem when you've had an addiction is that it does change the way your brain reacts to these stimuli, to these triggers, so that it's a lot easier to be sucked in if you're not vigilant. And we're talking about roots when we talk about trauma, because I know that I learned to avoid people for this. I learned to not depend on people for that. I didn't this and that. And I don't think you can go back. I'm pretty sure you can't go back to what my brain was like when I was four or when I was two and relearn that in a native way because it's too late. The brain has different stages of development. So I think part of the cure issue is that I can't be, I can't fix you know, there'll always be a scar, I guess is what, and you, you know, you can make scars look better, but you can't really make them go away. And I think what you're saying is the emotional scars and challenges of a really difficult early upbringing, they don't go away. And even though you know how hard you may try to be loving to your family, to show up for them, to act differently, there'll always be that part of your brain that defaults to that kind of thinking, really kind of what we'd call primitive thinking. Yeah. There's an analogy that I really liked from Stephen Covey's classic, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, where in the very beginning, he's got that really famous picture of the, the old woman and young woman picture, where you look at the same image and you can see it in two different ways. And something that I, I, I found to be fairly true about it, at least in the folk, myself and the folks I've worked with, is that when you look at that image, almost invariably, you're going to see one of those women first, either the young one or the old one even when you know they're both there, there's like a natural image that first hits your eye. Well, the way that I like to talk about it is that it, it's like you, you, if the old woman says what your mind sees first, your brain sees the old woman first, you might always see the old woman first, but if you know that you're looking at an image that you can see in two different ways and one hurts you and one helps you, and the old woman is the one that hurts you, then you can learn very quickly, you know, in a snap to see what's happening and to intentionally shift. And that sometimes is ultimately the goal of therapy is not to never see the old woman again, right. or to have your brain see the young woman first It's to say, I'm, you know, like my brain's going to go here, but I see what it's doing and I'm just going to guide it over here. And, you know, I want to say about that, that, and this is part of what I think upsets therapists when I say it is you don't cure trauma. You don't cure it. You teach people to adapt. You teach them to stop being reactive. Maybe the MDR, you teach them to not be immediately triggered by it, but we don't cure it. And I don't think therapists always think that way. They're like, oh, I'm going to fix the trauma. I'm going to work through the trauma. I'm going to understand the trauma, and then it won't be there anymore. And it just doesn't work that way. And maybe addiction is the same. You know, we just can't fix it. It's too early brain wired in, and we're stuck with it. But we can learn intellectually how to see the signs of it, which is relapse prevention, right? See the signs of it and know how to, at least in the moment, say, this isn't good for me and I've learned that it's not, I need to do that, even though everything in, my, everything in me wants to go do the thing I did before. Okay, last question, I promise, and this is so dead in your area, at least it better be. Whenever I do this podcast, and I do it a lot, the primary reason I do it is because there are people who can't afford to have access to this knowledge and they mm -hmm. can't, they don't have the resources. They may be able to listen to a podcast in their car, but they're not going to go to therapy. They don't have the money or they don't have the insurance or all these fancy treatment things that we talk about. They're never going to be able to have the time, the, the money, the ability to put themselves in that kind of environment. 
So how, what do I say, or how do we support the person who's listening, who says, this is all great, this is really helpful, but I can't go see someone about trauma. I, you know, maybe I go to one of those 12-step programs, but you know, it doesn't even make sense to me because I don't understand the background. How can we, and you're involved in the mucky mucks who spend money, how can we, even in this show, what am I to tell people about how to work on these very challenging things when they don't have the resources, the time, the money, the support? What do I say? What do we say to them here? Yeah. Not to put you on the spot or anything. Yeah. But also that that's a that's a tough question because it really highlights some of the inequities in our society to which there are not necessarily the best solutions and answers. Because I've I've got some resources we could talk about. It's not that there's not places that people can go and is not the same thing as working with a professional. You know, it's, it's really just not. If, if, if I, if I truly believed that the folks who I work with, you know, I, there's like a three or four month protocol for trauma that I like to do with folks that tends to get great results. You can't get that from a robot. Like the work that we do is something like you can't automate it. If someone was just reading a book, I don't think it would have the same impact. And so it's, it's, it's really tough. And that's part of where community mental health is so important or, you know, it's, 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 in my opinion, if there is a therapist you connect with, it's worth the investment. If you found someone who can move your life forward in that way, that being said, if it's something that's truly inaccessible, there, there are some workbooks, for example, like there's a, there's a series called treatments that work that I really like a lot. They're cognitive behavioral therapy books. It's one of like the foundational building blocks of a lot of modern therapy for a lot of different conditions. They've got great evidence behind it. There's some apps for certain conditions that can help a lot. Personally, I know my life changed about five years ago when I started meditating every day. Um, I'm a huge mm-hmm. proponent of mindfulness and mindfulness meditation, not in the buzzwordy sort of way, but in the legit, like actually doing it sort of way. And there's Did you have a kid that was born somewhere around there? Because I'm thinking that's when I'd start meditating, when I'm my second kid or, you know, whatever that is. It was when my second kid was born. You called it, actually. Yeah, it was. I, I had to make a change. <laughs> And I admire you for that because, you know, some people like, screw this, I'm going to start drinking. I have two kids. But here's the thing. So you have resources. People are going to reach you. They're want to, I mean, I think they're going to say, oh, this guy kind of knows things. It is how, what do they get? It's like, I want to learn about this and a resource. Is that how they, you would best serve them? Do you do work online? I mean, or do you teach courses or, you know, how could your average person access you for any reason? And what might they get out of that interaction? Yeah. At this point, I am still answering every email that I get, every person who reaches out to me on social media. Me too. Me too. Because it matters. It, it really does. Um, I mean, that's why we get into this work is to help people. And if someone takes the time to reach out to me, I, I would like to reach back. So anyone who'd like to reach out, my website is winerphd.com, W-E-I-N-E-R-P-H-D.com. Uh, and my email is Aaron. A-A-R-O-N at winerphd.com. And you're welcome to reach out to me that way. I've got a lot of resources on my website. I have a YouTube channel where I have some educational videos. Some of them are short bites. Some of them are a little bit longer, commentary, things like that. Um, As you mentioned, I I do a podcast from time to time. I'm very active on social media, particularly LinkedIn, where I push out new research, news as it happens. And more broadly speaking, a lot of what I'm doing these days is training and teaching with parents, with educators, with uh, behavioral health professionals. So if anyone's interested in reaching out to me about that. So if someone's at a school or in a college or something, you might be able to provide courses or feedback or coursework so that they can 
figure this out in a in a more effective current way. Very much so. Yeah, I, I, I do training seminars and uh, presentations for students. Uh, a lot of different areas. I'm just very passionate about taking the science and information, a lot of what we've talked about today, and bringing it to people uh, in whatever context that is, so that they can use it to ideally be better at their job or parent in a way that feels good or. So one more time, how can they reach you if they have these kind of resources or information they want to learn about? So uh, websites, winerphd.com, W-E-I-N-E-R-P-H-D.com. And they can reach you through that, right? They can drop you. Can they say, click, I want to leave a message or something like that from your website? Yeah, yeah. There's there's, there's a contact me form and uh, they can email too. And where are you if someone wanted to come see you for therapy or see you online? What state are you in or how do they... Uh, where can you work? Because I know we have limitations. Yeah, so I so I actually I'm located in the suburbs, uh, the northwest suburbs of Chicago. I'm in Illinois, but I work entirely virtually now. Over the pandemic, I the laws changed; they've stayed changed. I can practice across 35 states, and after very few of the people I work with are based in Illinois anymore, I realized that having an office was kind of superfluous. So. What I do right now uh, clinically is all virtual. So on my website, I list the the 35 states that I can practice in. And uh, if you're in one of them, we can chat. And thank you. And I, in case you folks haven't gotten that, I think we really enjoy each other, this gentleman. And I think we have a lot in common. And I think we'll be working to, to really try to help people at every level um, as we develop a relationship. So thank you, Dr. Weiner. And I'm going to be on your podcast and we're going to talk about sex and be my guest. So thank you for your time. And, you know, it's really an honor to know you. It's a lot of fun for me. Oh my gosh. Likewise. And thanks so much for having me on too. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term, effective, intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.